This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello and welcome to Front Office Features. I am Rob Crane and we're do uh, Chris Valente is here with me as we do a joint interview. Chris, how are you? I am great, Rob. Uh, day 11 of quarantine, so you know, things are things are still uh, kicking live and well. <laughs> That's good. That's good. So, uh, to pass the time here on uh, day 11 quarantine, uh, we're talking to uh, a national uh, sports law analyst, Dan Lust. Dan, uh, welcome to Front Office Features. Thanks for having me on, guys. Very excited to uh, you know go over a little bit about what's going on in the sports world and obviously uh, you know my path, how we, how we got here. Yeah, we're excited to talk about that. So uh, national sports law analyst. How does one become a national sports law analyst? It sounds fancy, right? It does sound fancy. Very fancy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's it's funny. So I'm sure like a lot of people listening to this podcast now, I grew up as a diehard sports fan all across the board. And for my life, I wanted to work in sports. So I, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll get into the, the whole the whole history. But um, I, I work in sports. Or sorry, I work in the law. I have a history working in sports. Um, and at some point, I just decided to start writing about sports. Uh, and then my passion for writing about sports became doing interviews about uh, writing about sports law, just kind of this weird crossover because I knew about both. And then, you know, then I was doing national radios across the country, national sports law radio. So I'm like, you know what? That's na- national sports law analyst sounds like what I'm doing. I don't know if anybody else is doing it. But, you know, as they say, guys, you got to fake it till you make it. Yeah. I love it. Love it. So you are a Union College guy and a Fordham uh, law uh, you want to kind of take us through uh, your uh, your life as a, in in college, your life at uh, at Fordham. I saw that you're the president. Of, you were the president of the sports law uh, law forum in Fordham, and uh, all kinds of good stuff. You want to kind of take us through uh, what your life was like in college, and then kind of those first steps right out of Fordham. Sure, sure. So um, when I was in college, uh, I I went to Union. My my uh, both my parents went there, so. Uh, it's one of those things, you know, uh, if you don't go to the, your parents' school, they're going to be mad at you forever. So union union was always on my radar. Um, but when I was there, uh, I'm sure like a lot of people on this call, you know, listening, I joined a fraternity, just, you know, thought it was a good way to meet people. When I was there, I was, you know, the athletics chair of my fraternity, just trying to meet as many people uh, that were, you know, similarly minded in terms of sports. Um, so it's always, always been a big passion of mine. Uh, and uh, my sophomore year when I was at union, uh, the New York Giants had their uh, training camp up in Albany. It was about 10 minutes away. So there was a, a post that went out on our school's job board. You know, if someone, you know, if someone had a car that was going to be around for the summer uh, that, you know, was interested in football and, you know, knew the area well, which, you know, obviously I did because I had been going and driving around unions connected in New York for about two years. So um, I applied, um, you know, and uh, 
sometimes you know you got to apply but you also got to use some connections that you might know to to get your resume to the top so uh fortunately i knew some people in the giants organization just from different connections i just said hey i applied is it possible you can make sure this gets to the right person and uh, fast forward i was one of a team of four uh, public relations interns for the New York Giants at their summer training camp in Albany University. Um, I did that for two summers back to back. And then, um, you know, the decision came, was I going to try to do this full time for the Giants and PR or maybe a different organization or a different sport? Or um, could I, you know, was I considering going to law school? My dad was a lawyer. So um, I had this uh, kind of heart to heart with my mom. And she said, you know, you could go to we could work in sports. But getting your JD is never going to hurt you in sports. It will only help you. So, uh, you know, then I decided to take the legal route. I, I continued to work for the Giants while I was in law school. I would drive up to East Rutherford every Sunday. Um, and then uh, I was the president of the Sports Law Society, which uh, I, we could get into it. There's a ton of fun stuff that, uh, that the sports law landscape and law school offers that no one really talks about. Well, what are some of those things? So, um, you know, everyone's heard of, uh, you know, moot court or mock trial. When you get to law school, there's this new field. I mean, it's, it was probably in its third, fourth year when I was there. Uh, around the country, there's these sports law negotiation competitions. So there's sports, sports law, mock trial. There's a mock negotiation competitions. You take a player contract, like the baseball arbitration proceedings, and you play the role of, you know, uh, we use... Uh, I'm trying to think who we had. We had, I think it was a long time ago now, but we did Carlos Quinton when he was with the, the Chicago White Sox. Um, you know, we, we did a whole case and we put our binders together about how the player side would argue, team side. So, you know, once uh, I, I started doing this baseball stuff, uh, I met now a ton of people that worked in this baseball arbitration realm from all these different competitions. Um, so then I got a job, uh, another just using different networks. I got a job with a company called SFX Baseball, who at the time were one of the top baseball agencies out there. Um, yeah. I helped with their baseball arbitration. Uh, and then I did some work for a, a law firm that did work for the Cincinnati Reds, Oakland Athletics, that did team side of the arbitration process. But, you know, it's just literally trying to take every opportunity I had and, and network and, and then kind of take it to the next level. So, but sports, sports law negotiations, that was just a crazy way to apply what I was learning in the classroom versus, you know, with my passion, which is, you know, kind of what I'm doing now. It kind of makes it, uh, it seems like it takes what you've learning in theory and putting it into uh, real life. Has any of those conversations that you had in those uh, competitions helped with your network or helped you kind of in your next steps? Yeah. You know, it's funny. Like I, you know, I get these calls. Um, I, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Yeah. You have and, a great uh, Twitter. You're a great Twitter follow. I'm looking through uh, your thank you very much. I'm uh, I'm at Sports Law Lust. If anybody wants to shoot me a follow. Oh yeah, give it Sports Law Lust. It's a great one. So yeah, I, I I'm uh, of the mindset. You know, a lot of people helped me in my career moving up. You know, I got the job at SFX Baseball. One of these judges at my competition at, at Tulane Law School. He took an interest in me and he said to follow up with him about potential openings. So I. If people have helped me, you know, it never hurts to ask. It never hurts to send someone a follow-up email. It never hurts to send someone an email out of the blue just to let them know how you're doing or if you, you know, got this big result or something like that. Um, but I always, you know, if there's someone on LinkedIn that says they want to, if, if I can give them so many, any pointers, any tips, um, you know, I always, I always answer it because there's not enough people that, that really do that. Um, but I, I think what's, what's important that, that I've always taken away the number people ask me, I get it once in a while, what's the biggest tip you could you could give me for trying to make a path in sports? I say, 
you know, A, you have to get super lucky, which you can't really control, but B, uh, you just got to expand your network as much, as much as possible, whatever societies, whatever conferences you can go to. Um, I, I think that just goes a tremendous way. The, um, Dan, this is Chris. So I, I learned a lot about what you just said about always making sure people reach out and, and get back to folks because not enough people do that. And oddly enough, you and I both started with the Giants as my career as well. I started as an intern and went up to Albany for training camp, working for uh, Ethan Medley and Allison Stanger in community you. relations. Yeah, I know. I was with Peter John Baptiste. Peter John Baptiste, yep. So I knew Peter as well because he was a UMass grad and I was coming out. Of, I went to UMass. So that's how I got into the Giants back in 2004 and started my career. So it's kind of funny. And then I actually ended up in Albany Later in my life, with working for the Albany Devils when I was working for the New Jersey Devils, so I know Union College well and where you were for those four years. So it's kind of a small world as we try and tell everybody on this podcast. Um, but in terms of like reaching out and what other people in the industry should be doing, and, and, and I think a lot of folks who are younger are, are timid to reach out to folks such as ourselves or you um, under the guise that they might be bothering us. And, and we've always tried to coach people up of like, look, if there's a different way to approach it ver rather than just always about them, but also trying to add value to why you're reaching out to someone. Like, what do you think from a best practices standpoint, specifically within the law uh, sector of sports, how people should be, who they should be reaching out to and how they should go about it to get to the right folks to have these conversations? I think it's, Truthfully, I think it's just about casting a wide net for for as many people that are you know like minded, like the three of us that are interested in helping people. I think there are people that really have best intentions, just don't you know they're just too busy to to do to do it. You know, I remember you know for every call that was very successful that got me to a different level, be it you know the Giants or SFX Baseball or Excalibur Sports, which is where I was doing the team side of arbitration. Um, you know, I, I got maybe. Uh, actually, well, I'll just tell you, the, I mean, the real numbers, I mean, like, let's say I make 10 phone calls, right? And there are 10 emails, I'll email 10 people, maybe an identical thing, like, hey, I'm just reaching out, I'm interested in, in X, you know, or, uh, you know, my summer internship's about to end, I'm trying to do something for the fall. For every 10 you send out, maybe you get one response, right? Maybe nine people don't even respond. But my, my theory, and I've taken that to what I do now on the media end, if I, if no one responds, I mean, the worst case scenario is that they're, you know, I mean, they're, the worst thing is that they, you're in the same spot that you were before. They just ignored it, which is fine. Um, but unbeknownst to you, sometimes it's, it's just important to tell them that you exist, that you're on the radar. Uh, and I, I'll tell you just from my standpoint, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm uh, obviously, you know, I'm not in college anymore. I'm, I'm since graduated law school. I'm now in my seventh year of practice, right, right around there. Um, so uh, now on the sports media end, uh, now I do, you know, I get radio interviews around the country. But when I was really starting out in this industry, which wasn't that long ago, maybe, you know, a, a year ago, when I really started to hit my ground running on, on radio, I would send out maybe 100 emails. And I was a com nobody in this space, but maybe I'd get two, three responses and I'd get on the air in those three markets. And uh, I think it's sometimes just about being persistent. Uh, and then when I would you know, got on those three radio stations for, you know, some article I wrote, I would then respond to the other 97 that didn't respond. And I'd say, Hey, just circling back with you. I actually just did three radio interviews in these spots here, are the links below, you know, um, let me know if you're interested. I'm happy to happy to go on. And then I'd get another six or seven. And then, you know, for the other 90 that didn't respond at that point, I'd say, Hey, now it's up to 10. I just did this really giant spot with Fox sports radio national. Um, you know, what about now? So I, I, you know, I don't think that there's any harm from uh, sending emails. You know, if somebody wants to ignore you, that's fine. But there's enough people that are out there, if they see that you're persistent, um, 
I really think that goes a long way. Anybody can send one email, but uh, I hear all these stories about people across sports that wrote letters to every single team in Major League Baseball, every single team in basketball. I think those are the people that get ahead because they have that persistence. I love no, that. That's, that's great. And because the other thing too, is we also try and preach is like, to your point, sending one email, even to that one individual is not all it takes. I mean, following up and following up with the right manner. So what you just touched on there of like, hey, I'm now up to eight, I'm now up to 10 for another reason to reach back out with something more relevant than just reaching back out is is such a great message because people think that just like they are going to send this one email to a senior vice president in a company and they might respond. And, and a lot of times people maliciously don't like they aren't ignoring you. It's just things get in the way, life gets in the way and your email gets pushed down. And that's why having the tact and being persistent without being annoying is so is so key to getting the, the relevant conversations that you hope to do. Um, one, one, in terms of you, the, the conversations you're doing right now in, in the in the national media, what vertical of sports law do you most enjoy focusing on? <laughs> it's like you're like a kid in a candy store. I mean, it's it's all in my wheelhouse. I mean, I'll just I could kind of tell you how it kind of came to be, which is. Um, just a kind of interesting story for anybody that's on the sports business side, sports law side, or just, you know, I, I used to write, uh, it doesn't exist anymore, but there was a site, prosportsblogging.com. I'm a big San Francisco Giants fan. I would write about Buster Posey and Rob Men and whoever else from the Giants, but I, I just got used to writing. Um, so I, and I used to, I got used to watching sports and seeing if there was an interesting takeaway. So about a year ago, um, I, you know, it's about June, it's a little less than a year ago. I'd been doing little sports writing here and there, you know, when there was a legal article, um, you know, something in the vicinity of sports law. But I, I finally, I saw something that no one else was talking about online when Kevin Durant came back from his Achilles or from his, uh, I think it was a hamstring strain at that point during the finals last year in the Raptors. I'm sitting there as an attorney and I practice in this space of like defending against lawsuits. So I was just thinking, I'm like, well, if everyone online is saying that the Warriors forced Durant back and that's why he tore his Achilles. I'm like, as an attorney, let me put my hat on for a second. Let me do my legal research. Could Durant actually sue the Warriors if they forced him back to the court early? And I'm like, well, obviously no one's never done that in sports. I've never heard about that. But I have heard about doctors forcing someone, you're clearing someone to return to work, maybe after like a worker's comp injury, and then they re-injure themselves. So it's not a really sexy topic for sports fans. But once you apply that framework to a Durant, you get a really sexy headline because Durant's Achilles injury is obviously taking him out for the whole year. You know, Achilles is the most serious injury in all sports. Um, like it ended Patrick Ewing's career and ended Kobe Bryant's career and ended uh, Isaiah Thomas's career. The Detroit Pistons won. Um, so I said, if it really ends his career, which, you know, we never know. But if I'm Durant's attorney, uh, how much would Durant have made over the next 10 years? Well, he makes 40 million a year. Uh, LeBron's, you know, playing until he's 40. So why wouldn't I sue for 10 years of lost revenue at $100 million a year? Like, why wouldn't I ask for that? So I wrote this article that was, uh, you know, the anatomy of a billion dollar lawsuit, how Kevin Durant could sue the Warriors. And uh, it's a, it was a sexy topic. And I was at the perfect intersection of sports and law. And uh, of all people, somehow it fell on the desk of Darren Ravel, who's a giant sports business reporter. Um, he retweeted it out. And then, you know, I've since been off and running since then. So um, I, I love all angles of it. It's fun to watch sports with kind of this legal lens. Uh, and that's, you know, that's really kind of how I fall into it. 
Go ahead, Chris. Uh, I was going to say, Darren Ravel probably needs something to do right about now. <laughs> his, Twitter, his Twitter looks a lot different than it usually does. He's trying to keep people entertained, and some of, his, some of his dance moves leave a lot to be desired. But um, no, I, I, I actually – It's a little funny, too. I don't know if you're watching that. Yeah, he's um, – He's he's a he's become a, just a character for himself at this point, right? He's become such a celebrity. I mean, he's, I think he's over two million followers on social media now, which is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. What he's blown up, uh, but it's kind of funny. Like he kind of started to almost to what you're doing, Dan. He's he he created a vertical on the reporting side of sports business and ended up with uh, ESPN. I think was he at CNBC for a while? Was he at one of the one of those for? And then just saw this hole that you kind of you've now started to fill in of just taking this this tact of interse- intersection of sports and business, and then you're now doing it with sports and law. And a lot of folks who are trying to get into our business are always like, it's really hard, it's really hard, I can't find my way in. This just goes to show, like, look, if you just get off your ass and do something and and, and make something by yourself, like Rob and I started this podcast on a whim because we want to do something to help out people and give back. So you you just found this sector that you you enjoyed – but started writing and you started reaching out to organizations to get on there and to talk about legal and sports. And it just, that kind of advice is just so refreshing to hear rather than someone just waiting around for something to happen. You just made this go out and happen yourself. Yeah. And I mean, listen, it's, it's not all, you know, you guys are talking about like verticals, you know, a lot of my, I guess, you know, for, for as sexy as it sounds, I worked for the giants and I worked for SFX baseball. So from the 2008 to 2013, my resume was like just sports, you know, and going to law school, still doing sports. Um, and then, you know, they're, they're, it's not without its its pitfalls. Sometimes you can go, you have to kind of take a winding road to, to get back on it. I mean, I remember I graduated law school and, uh, you know, I had this, I don't know who could have had a better sports hybrid law resume than me, but, you know, it's, it's the job market's competitive. So I remember, you know, I was just wanting to get this perfect opportunity. I considered going to work uh, just as a baseball agent, just trying to get clients. And then I'm like, well, you know, you guys are both in baseball. I mean, I, I never played. I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> I wasn't ready to live out of my van in, in Florida. Um, so I, I said, you know what? I have a you know a girlfriend at the time who's now my wife. And I'm like, I got to make some money. Uh, so, I, you know, for really about four years or so, I worked just purely, purely in law. And I followed my passion on the side, um, you know, fantasy baseball, 10-time champion, you know. Oh, <laughs> humble brag, humble brag. Humble brag, but, you know, if you're listening out there and you're in my league, it's, I mean, these are all facts. <laughs> and I'm coming <laughs> for you next year. Well, you're a lawyer. You're dealing facts. That's right. This is just facts. Yeah, so, but, but you got to put your passion to the house. If you never give it up, you get discouraged. But um, you know, I, I, now, five years later, I look back at my resume, and I'm like, you know, everything, I'm a big believer in everything happens for a reason. Now, I can probably choose, you know, I mean, this, this, this doesn't sound as sexy as sports law, but it doesn't happen. I don't get to where I am now without it. I do these, uh, it's going to sound very boring, but these sports continuing legal education classes, CLEs, and I teach, you know, it has nothing to do with sports, but I teach different classes to lawyers and to judges about how to use technology in the courtroom and whatnot. But I just got used to the reps of speaking, uh, meeting in front of people. And then once I hit with that Darren Rebell article, I could tell people legitimately, hey, I wrote this article for Rebell, I can speak. There's like, you know, like 50 of these classes that are on webinars, all that stuff. So just give me a shot on the radio. I'm, I'm, I won't, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I've never done it before, but I can 
speak for a living, so I think that's what I did. So, but had I not done these, you know, two, three years of these CLE classes, which, you know, they, they weren't, I wasn't getting paid for it. I just liked doing it, just was getting my reps in, my public speaking chops. Um, I don't, I don't probably get on the air for any sports radio interview. So, you know, you could be doing stuff in your own life to build up those skills. Uh, you know, so when you're, when you hit with something like a Ravel article, which, you know, we all have had that, that big break. But you have to have the the resume and the skills at that point to to kind of uh, make the most of it. Yeah, Dan Lust is our big break. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. That's great. That's great. So there's some things I to get kind of on the um, on the current news topic. There's some things that you've been talking a lot about. We got the NFL draft upcoming, and then you know when the questions are about when the other drafts and different things are are happening. Besides just the normal postponement of you know, the draft or some things, <clears throat> excuse me, what there's some behind the things that take, uh, that take pl- the behind the scenes things that take place such as like draft declarations and different things like that. Um, talking about the major league baseball draft or the NBA draft that are upcoming. Do you want to talk about some of the things that people don't know normally about what's happening other than, you know, what they see on TV would just be, you know, potentially delayed a week or two or a month. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'll, uh, uh, do we, do we talk about gambling on here? Is that allowed? So please, absolutely. I encourage it. I used to work, I used to work for DraftKings. We can talk about gambling all day long if you want. So I'll give you the best, the best way I can explain this. So people, you know, people want to say the NBA is going to be delayed, baseball is delayed, the draft is going to get moved from Vegas to maybe a studio show. So that's only one half of the coin. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I dabble in bets when I see one that's obviously going to win. Uh, I'm not <laughs> that's not gambling then, that's just winning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just my, my motto when it comes to fantasy baseball, and obviously with bets too. Um, no, but, I, but just at this intersection of kind of sports and law, I went on you know, one of these offshore sites and I was just kind of looking at where they thought the odds were to return to sports from, from the coronavirus. So the first line I saw when it popped up, basketball will, will return by May 4th. So I thought that was interesting. So it wasn't, that wouldn't have been that much of a delay. It would have been about six weeks. So I, um, putting on, similar to how I did with Durant back in the day, I put on my you know, legal thinking hat and I'm like, you know what? I'm, I practice in law. There's something called force majeure, um, which is basically if, um, if there's something like a hurricane, Katrina, or God forbid, like a 9-11, um, if that cancels an event, it's no one's fault. The contract's just null and void. So it's not necessarily a sports contract, right? Like I have a friend that's getting married in a couple weeks. Their wedding was canceled because of you know what's going on in the world around us. So they don't, you know, they get their money back from the venue. The venue doesn't have to hold the spot for them. That's generally how force majeure act of God's work. So... I knew the NBA had a force majeure clause. I didn't really know what it said, but I went into the NBA CBA. I'm a lawyer. I can read these agreements. I found it. You know, uh, it's like way buried deep in the 400 pages right around there. And it said um, the NBA owners can cancel the season, but they have to do so within 60 days of this force majeure event. So that would be, um, you know, whoever's listening. So I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard Rudy Gobert was uh, the first diagnosis in the NBA of Utah Jazz. And then within a couple of hours, the NBA suspended the season. So just doing math and just like deductive reasoning, you know, I'm like, okay, 60 days from March 11th is when this happened. That's May 10th. So I'm, you know, I didn't, it wasn't being reported anywhere. I'm just, I'm just sitting on it. I read the, did the, I did the research. I'm like, okay, so we'll know if the NBA is going to cancel the year as opposed to postponing it by May 10th. So I, I 
tweeted that out, um, which got picked up by, uh, you know, among others, J.A. Donde retweeted that out. Uh, you know, had you know, a ton of impressions in the tweet, but the offshore line was still staying there at May 4th. So I'm like, listen, I'm not crazy. Uh, I, you know, I, I think that just this line has to be wrong. So the next day that May 4th line was gone, it then moved to honor before um, June 1st will basketball return. And then the next day that was done. And then it was replaced by July 1st. And now in its current line, the NBA return is set at July 13th. So I think from the, the sports betting perspective, I mean, these offshore accounts, they're not, you know, the sites technically are illegal, but you never, I mean, uh, you never want to say never, but the sites are, you know, you don't want to place bets on those, but it, it'll tell you exactly, you know, how people are thinking and people behind those sites are viewing those lines. So basketball is not going to return until July 11th. I mean, that's guys, it's a, an unprecedented delay of four months. Um, and you have a real legitimate chance. You don't, you don't want it to happen, but the owners, right, they're paying rent on these giant arenas and they have no revenue coming in. Um, so uh, Woj has reported that the, the players are supposed to get paid on April 15th. You know, they get paid every two weeks. So Woj is saying that the owners aren't sure if they're going to pay that money or if they're going to hold off and see if they should pay for the season. So it's kind of a unprecedented in sports, but uh, I guess just as a final note, on this, I mean, Silver Silver had this press conference, Commissioner, uh, the NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, and he said among the, they said they're considering three options for the NBA. One, if they can return to full speed. Two, if they can return, you know, without fans. And three was this weird scenario that, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll make sense now, but he said, we're considering an option where a group of players compete in a giant fundraiser. And so I'm sitting there, you know, from my standpoint, and I'm like, the only reason he's saying that group of players competing for a giant fundraiser is if the NBA is potentially going to be canceled, then the only people that will play are voluntary guys that are going to be, you know, in quarantine or something like that, that, you know, and maybe there's like a LeBron, Giannis type fantasy draft. Um, but there's a real potential for this season to be canceled. It makes sense economically. It makes sense because of the arena availability when it comes to August. I know the Milwaukee Bucks, right, they have like um, Democratic National Convention is going to be in their arena come come August, when at a time where basketball is not supposed to be occurring, it's supposed to be done by June. So there's you just read into the breadcrumbs. You listen to what Woj is saying with like these doomsday provisions. What he's mean by that is this work work thing, back to God thing. I, I think it's I think it's possible. I mean, you'd, you'd hate to see it, but it's a really serious thing we're dealing with now. And you know, in terms of legal liability, I don't think you know, Silver is going to allow fans back in the arena or players for that matter. Are there the same force majeure contract uh, language in uh, Major League Baseball and uh, NHL? And is this is this typical um, in CBAs uh, on the other three major sports? You, you see it in different ways, shapes, and forms. I mean, the, the, the language in, in uh, baseball is called this national emergency clause. It's not in the, the CBA, but it's in the player contracts. Um, and then, you know, just because I, I try to sit again at this, like, this weird vantage point, you know, Trump the other day, you know, I don't, I don't know, right, like, force majeure is sometimes vague. The NBA has a, you know, line that says an epidemic counts as a force majeure. So we're in a pandemic, so pandemic's one level higher than epidemic. So this qualifies for the NBA. So, but even when the NBA canceled, it's still unclear to me if this is a national emergency, because that's, it said the government has to declare a national emergency, which... When, when basketball suspended, Trump hadn't said if it was a national emergency or not. So this past week, 
um, Trump in his press conference, I think it was probably Monday or Tuesday, called this, you know, he's declaring a state of national emergency. So at that point was when I think baseball's lawyers felt comfortable to cancel to cancel their season. And I apologize, not cancel, suspend their season. But you see language in all sports, and you know, I was just reading this great article um, back in 2001 when Paul Tagliabue, in the, in the aftermath of 9-11, was considering whether to you know, cancel week two or replay it or not, you know, just to stay on board. And I, you know, I'm sure it's there some, some way, shape, form. I couldn't find it in the CBA, the new CBA at least, um, what, what football sports majeure looks like. But, you know, at the end of the day, even with absent of force majeure, if there's a, a reason to not allow fans in from a safety perspective, and the players don't want to play, I mean, everyone's got the ability to do that. And the reason that you saw all these sports kind of fall in line after basketball is because you don't want to be the sole sport out there on an island and God forbid, you know, something something goes wrong or there's an outbreak uh, in, the fan, in the stands. So I think all these sports are going to kind of follow each other. Um, I mean, there's a total different legal issue with respect to like WWE and UFC, how those guys can go on. But I think when it comes to the four major sports, because those guys are, are unionized and have collective bargaining agreements, um, I think it's a, they're going to play it a lot safer as compared to, you know, the WWE, which doesn't have a union. It's really just Vince McMahon. Do you think the um, the same? Do you think that you know we've talked about the four major, but we also have the Olympics coming out, and there's news today that they're talking about postponement. Uh, how do you think the Olympics will differ than the other major sports in this in uh, in this regard? I think the, the breaking news is actually formally been postponed. It's formally postponed. Got it. Formally postponed at Sports Law Lust. I retweeted the first. <laughs> Good at Sports Law Lust. That's, if there's any Twitter to follow after this one, it's uh, it's that one. Yeah. So um, I, I I saw the writing on the wall. I mean, it's not just the four majors too, right? Kentucky Derby got postponed. You know, postponed. The Nationals are postponed. And the problem, you know, the the reason that basketball could be canceled is probably the same reason the Olympics has to be postponed. It's this outbreak is affecting different teams in the NBA differently than it's affecting others, right? The Nets get hit with four guys, the Celtics, I know got a couple, um, and some teams just don't have any positive tests at all. So the owners have to agree to come back to basketball in a, in a landscape potentially where some teams are you know, uh, at a further disadvantage. So when it came to the Olympics, you're kind of talking about the same type of scenario, right? The United States is getting affected, but it's definitely worse in other countries. Italy, you know, is, is the one everyone, you know, comes to mind. So, you know, as the Outbreak continues country to country, wouldn't necessarily be fair. I mean, I don't know if that's the main reasoning, but it just kind of makes sense. You know, um, it wouldn't be for the record books or however you want to phrase it, or just in terms of the spread, wouldn't make sense to potentially, right? Let's say, let's say you had certain athletes from Italy that were competing in this that had been quarantined and whatnot. Um, You could use your imagination as to how this outbreak would spread even further in a scenario where there's people from, you know, a cosmopolitan close to the country. So I think, um, you know, on a fairness level and just on a safety level, I think that was, uh, that was, make, makes a lot of sense. And I think it's probably the right call. So from a, from a baseball perspective, Dan, we're, we're in a little bit of a different boat right now because of our season hadn't started. And now, as you mentioned, it's been postponed. I know one of the big discussion points that the players and the players union have um, on the table is service time, right? So if we actually play a shortened season, half season, there's this big discussion about service time because that obviously then affects free agency. I mean, there's also we are we're involved with probably the biggest trade in the offseason of trading Mookie Betts to the Dodgers, who may, in theory, only get Mookie for a shortened period of time because of service time. So, like, 
How do you foresee that all being played out if we play a half season, no season, and so forth? Because, I mean, that's that's obviously what these players care about is when they can actually get to free agency. And what are you hearing on that in that world? It's a great question. I mean, I, I, I also, just from my baseball background, I remember how important that Super 2 deadline is. And you just you know, basically calculated off of how many days the guy is playing. You know, there's all the, obviously, third-year eligible players in there. So that's a few of Super 2 players. That's why that, um, Chris Bryant had that really public grievance a couple of years back. Um, you know, it's, every day a guy plays, I mean, just creatively, what you could, in theory, do is prorate everyone's days, right? So if you play... Um, you know, speaking of, of offshore lines, that, that one I told you about, that May 4th basketball line, it's now July 13th. The one for the for baseball's line is 81 and a half games for the most uh, games played by any one particular team, uh, which is a scary thought that half the season, in theory, could be wiped out. Um, but that's, you know, you gotta, you got to move on the fly. Uh, do I, I don't, I don't think there's any particular guidance yet as to what would happen, but, you know, in baseball, uh, Unlike the other sports, I have heard at least more reports that, uh, for example, the MLB draft could be moved back a full year, uh, not just postponed. I think it could be canceled and could do a double draft the following year. That that baseball draft is scheduled at least for June 10th. Um, so, I, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not really in a position to say what exactly is going to happen, but I've heard this that because college baseball allowed players get an additional year of eligibility, they're going to hammer out the details. But the NCAA said spring athletes could get this additional year. Um, now the MLB is at least giving more consideration to moving the draft to accommodate that. So if we're just talking about baseball and what's going to happen, I mean, I guess it's anyone's best guess. I, I think that they – I don't think there's as likely to be a cancellation of the baseball season just because of, you know, we're not starting uh, so quick. It's not like it's, you know, you're in the middle of the season like basketball. Um but, yeah, I mean, I, I think if baseball is going to be, want to be played, I, I can't imagine that uh, they're going to forego and cancel the season if, this, if they're, they're giving the opportunity to play some games, get it in maybe do 60 games, 75 games. We've had short seasons before. It's not so unprecedented. Um, but it's anyone's best guess as to how it's going to work out. I, I can't imagine that, uh, that they would call, you know, they would say 86 days as opposed to a full year of service. So I know it's it's going to be tough. Um, I will say one thing on the uh, you know I don't baseball doesn't have this clause at least it's not uh, public consumption. But for for basketball, um, if the season is canceled on May 10th, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's no chance of playing basketball. It just means that um, from 60 days at the, at the time from 60 days of the day of the cancellation, let's say it's May 1st, so that would give you until July 1st. The NBA Players Association. And the owners have to get together to come to agreement on a successor agreement that's going to be operative at least for that particular year. So I would probably think just going along the lines of what we've seen so far in sports, you know, everyone's been following basketball to some extent. Um, and then when baseball announced that it was following the CBT guidance of uh, spending for eight weeks because of this, you know, didn't have groups of more than 50 people. Um, I, I think probably what's going to happen if the season is shortened, there's going to be a new agreement. Uh, and the player association is going to have to get together with the owners of baseball, uh, you know, and basketball, to try to uh, figure out what this new landscape of sports will look like. Um, you know, but uh, again, you can't rule out a full cancellation just because we don't we don't really know the time frame of what's going on with Corona. So, so sports law fascinates I me. Mean, law in general fascinates me. I always 
was going to probably be a lawyer if I didn't go into what I did. What about from a liability standpoint that we face as organizations when this all does come back online and we do let people back into our stadiums and all of a sudden someone claims they got coronavirus because they attended a baseball game? Will it be will we be protected more so by what the government is dictating as their kind of measures and saying this is what we you're all free to go outside again now or like I always wonder about that because like we're obviously from an organization are the ones you'd want to sue because we have money and typically people want to sue people with money. So like, how are we going to be able to safeguard ourselves as organizations and teams from when we bring people back into our ballparks and huge crowds um, with obviously a situation that's been championed for social distancing, keeping people as far apart as possible. And then we're going to be facilitating folks to get back into the, what you'd call, I guess, whatever you want to call a normal life again. Um, and bringing people back out to the, the ballparks, arenas, and stadiums. So it's it's interesting. I mean, you guys would probably know this um, more so than most, but when you buy a ticket to go into these games, any, nobody really reads the back of the ticket. Yeah, no one's ever read that thing. It's so it's it's printed small for a reason, right? So you can't read nobody, it. Nobody reads it. Um, but the, you know, if you did read it, uh, you, you kind of see that what's on the back of that ticket is kind of your, we'll say, your contract to enter into the stadium. Says among other things, all the language is going to be different across sports. Um, and some, some, you know, tickets won't have it. But the, the, those that do, and I, I imagine the Red Sox, where I know different sports things can have it. But it says, you know, um, watch out for all flying balls, flying bats. You know, you're in the zone of danger. You have to be mindful of all the risks around you. You know, the team's not going to be held liable for acts uh, that you should have been aware of, or risks that you should have been aware of. So I think the first level is this. Um, there's something called negligence. Uh, it's a fancy way of saying. Uh, you know, you could be found liable if their acts were careless and cause harm to others. So, you know, in the aftermath of the Rudy Gobert uh, incident, was touching by the same team. You know. Yeah, that wasn't great. Not a great week for Rudy. No, it's a, it's a really bad look. Um, and it probably didn't help him that after the fact, he comes out and he says, you know, my actions were careless. So in terms of a lawsuit against Rudy Gobert, if you could show, I mean, it's not, it's almost impossible, but if you could show that you got, you got it from him, He's already admitting that his acts were careless. There's an, it's probably, I mean, impossible to show how exactly he got it. So I guess taking that to the, the stadium context, that's why the NBA shut down so quickly and why all these leagues are listening to the CDC. You have to provide a safe place for your fans to watch a game. Uh, that's pretty straightforward. But when it comes to something like a flying bat or a ball or a puck if you're at a Bruins game, those are some risks that you know about. Um, this whole coronavirus you know, pandemic, We've never really seen it in sports the last hundred years as to what you know possible you know, uh, viruses or disease could be going around the stands. So why I mentioned these tickets, I know for once uh, for one team that the Philadelphia 76ers have some crazy language on their tickets that say the, the Sixers will be not be liable for any uh, you know any potential harm caused as a result of you attending these games. So I expect to see you know from the legal standpoint a lot of those language to be shown up you know to be uh, put together a little cleaner. Uh, and maybe, guys, maybe they'll uh, increase the font size. And, they'll <laughs> yeah. um, and then uh, I, I think, uh, you know, from a, from a third level, it, it's it's going to be tough for, you know, fans to, once once they're comfortable to come back. Um, but, you know, again, that's why I think, you know, just so you guys know where the, I guess the odds maker is putting it, uh, the NFL is, uh, there's another line I saw on those off-court accounts, will week one of the NFL games, have fans in the stands. So that's, a, I think, a minus 200 favorite in some golf show books. So that's, you know, late late August, September, right around that time frame. Um, so 
I think it's a matter of time, but you know, that's what I think NBA owners and, and baseball owners, everyone's a little concerned about that. If they open the gates to have these games played, you know, they're really hoping for all these fans to be there because it's a tremendous cost to have a baseball game and you're hoping it to have, you know, at or near full capacity. So if they do that, you know, they have to protect themselves with the proper liability language and also, you know, the proper guidance from, you know, the government or the, you know, the uh, athletic commission. That's, um, it's, that's a, that was a great question, Chris. I, I was thinking something similar and now you kind of have me thinking uh, about that in general. Um, if you don't mind, I want to totally change topics as we kind of, I want to be mindful of your time um, here, but there's one uh, topic that you've been uh, passionately uh, discussing and being kind of on the forefront of and being on the, on the uh, front line of is um, college athletes and being paid for their likenesses and, and, and the such. You just kind of want to give a, over, I know that's a very detailed and complicated issue, but you want to kind of give a um, a detail, a overview of where what your opinion is and where you kind of stand on that subject. Yeah, yeah, I think. Um, well, I guess I'll put it this way. So we had a uh, really toward the end of last year when California's fair play to play comes out, and then all these states got really excited, and you know you saw all these different states got their own legislation, and everyone's all excited about getting athletes paid, um, and so then. You know, there's this big movement. Everyone is kind of, you know, going after the NCAA. You know, we're you know, we're passing it here, we're passing it there, and the NCAA, I think, smartly, you know, they said, okay, we've heard your issue, we've heard everything. We're going to come up with our own system, and we're going to get it right. We're going to establish this task force, and we're going to figure out a way to get players paid. Um, so that was guys uh, a few months ago at this point, but to put it lightly, um, and we haven't heard any updates on that front. Um, since that time, Florida has passed legislation that, uh, unlike um, California's legislation, goes into effect in uh, 2023. So Florida's legislation goes into effect uh, in 2021, the summer of 2021. So, you know, just in general, right, athletes, should they get paid for their services in some way, shape, or form? I mean, I think maybe the best example of it, guys, like, uh, I know I was watching CBS over the weekend, and I was watching this uh, 1982 finals between you know, the, the Tar Heels and, uh, and Ewing's uh, Georgetown. And right there's, we know we know a handful of guys from that game. James Worthy was on the on the North Carolina, Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing was on the other side. But for the, you know, however many other people were on those rosters, those guys never played in the pros. We've never heard their names again. So were those guys entitled to some money from this national television game that's still being shown, you know, 40 years later, 30 years later? Um, yeah, I, I would think so. The problem is with these time frames I'm giving you, you know, with this, uh, the NCAA is in no rush to get this done. Uh, so I wrote this article toward the end of last year, which I'm, I'm happy to share. Very sexy. <laughs> process. That's a great one. That's a great one. Very creative. It's a good one, right? Good marketing team over there. So, uh, listen, this marketing team <laughs> is all in my brain. Um, yeah, so I, this, this, not to bore everyone with the details, but the NCAA is not allowed to just say, hey, you know, they're, they're not allowed to treat their athletes just so uh, improperly and kind of wage to discriminate against a group of people. Um, the other thing they're not allowed to do is to ban schools from, you know, violating their rules. Um, so this happens two, three times in the NCAA's history. Um, but I, I foresee if NCAA hasn't gotten around to switching their athlete compensation laws and Florida's going to push the issue, 
the NCAA already threatened to ban California schools, um, but now they might threaten to ban Florida schools if they haven't got their, their ducks in a row by 2021. So if that happens, which it's not just kind of conjecture, you know, NCAA threatened, you know, Ohio State said we're not going to play California schools. They're going to have an unfair advantage. They're going to get all the best players. Um, I think Wisconsin's athletic director also said the same thing. So I wrote this article, Antitrust the Process. Um, if, if that happens, if the NCAA continues to go on this, on this route and to disobey now state law across the country, um, could the NCAA get hit with the giant antitrust lawsuit? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's definitely possible. I know Trump's, um, there's an antitrust chair in his office that, you know, he said it's on his radar what the NCAA is doing. So I think that's, you know, we're pretty much in a holding pattern until the NCAA lets it fly or they decide not to let it fly. But that first date to watch out for it, the earliest legislation will go into effect is uh, the summer of 2021, which is next year. So, you know, for, for all the NCAA wants, they could absolutely do nothing and sit on their hands until that time. But uh, once they start to go in, you know, contravention to Florida State law. Well, it'll be interesting uh, where it goes. And we know that you'll be on the um, forefront of talking about it and writing some great articles, being on uh, podcasts like this and radio shows all across the country. So, uh, Dan, you want to just give uh, we're so thankful of your time and you just want to kind of give our listeners where where to find you, uh, how they can uh, communicate with you and how they can learn kind of what you've what you're doing. Sure. Um, I think the best place to get me, um, if, if you want to go on LinkedIn, that's fine. I, I usually post like the best of, you know, whatever oh, we lose on Twitter, I'll move it over to LinkedIn just because, you know, uh, LinkedIn, I can't really post such high volume with Twitter. Um, again, at sports law lust. Um, I, you know, I try to, I try to be pretty active. I try to stay at the, the top of those communications. Um, I retweet, you know, when there's big stories from Woj or just like today when Tokyo was postponed. So I've developed a nice following over there. I think, on my last count, I think I'm just over 4,000 followers there. And uh, just for this, again, just to bring this back to, you know, at the humble beginnings, I toiled around with like 100 followers. And then Darren Ravel oh. retweeted me and all of a sudden that number shot up. So, uh, you know, just, yeah. And, but I, but I had, you know, I had 2,000 tweets before that. I just, you know, so I, I had some probably legitimacy to a guy like Ravel that I'm not, you know, I'm trying hard, I'm hustling. So you gotta you gotta start somewhere. Um, so yeah, at Sports Law Lust or LinkedIn, uh, Dan Lust, and then uh, if you just want to look, it's Dan Lust, and I I call myself Dan Lust. Yes. Oh, this is uh, this conversation has been great. I enjoyed it. Uh, a ton and uh, we're so thankful that you join us and you know when uh, Dan Lust you know retweets and tells us uh, tells the world about their front office features art uh, interview uh, our, our Twitter followers are gonna go through the roof this is the magic sauce <laughs> we appreciate it I'm, I'm happy uh, to sprinkle that dust over there now we got a little correspondent whenever something news breaks so Dan we look forward to talking to you again once all this settles down with Corona no, of course. That'd, that'd be my pleasure. Awesome. Thanks again, Dan. We really appreciate your time. Have a good one.